This is Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Rob McClure is out tonight, but will return next week when I will be out. Here are tonight's headlines. It's the day after the election, and we have a lot of news on last night's returns. Senator Melissa Agard announced today that she's planning to run for Senate Democratic leader. Agard said in her announcement that it is incumbent on Senate Democrats to lift up the voice of the people across the state and affect the change that they have demanded. She would succeed Senator Janet Bewley, who did not run for re-election. That district has now flipped for Republicans, with Romaine Robert Quinn beating the Democratic candidate last night. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss soundly defeated write-in candidate Adam Steen, who previously had nearly defeated him in a primary. Voss's opponent was strongly supported by Trump, who did robocalls for Steen in which uh, he called Voss a horrendous rhino, or Republican in name only. Voss beat both Steen and Democratic write-in candidate Joel Jacobson by over 10,000 votes combined. In addition to being relegated to write-in status, Steen received unwanted attention when secret recordings of his staff meeting were released in which he disparaged his potential voters. WKOW News reports that a viral video is circulating that ostensibly shows a Dane County poll worker fraudulently marking ballots. Dane County Clerk Scott McDonnell has explained that the man in the video is marking that same spot on one side of each ballot, quite clearly not filling out a ballot from top to bottom. McDonnell stated that the ballot marking is required by law, and the ballot marking is then checked by another poll worker. Almost all suburban school districts in the greater Madison area had referendums on the ballot to fund new projects and support operations for their schools. And last night, all 10 questions were approved by voters. According to the Capital Times, voters in Verona approved $19 million for recurring funding for operations, such as hiring additional teachers and other staff. Wanakee voters approved borrowing $175 million to build new elementary and middle schools and rehab the existing buildings. School districts in Middleton Cross Plains, Mount Horeb, Belleville, and Sun Prairie also voted to surpass their spending limits and authorize additional funds for operations. Stoughton voters approved $48 million in borrowing by a margin of 2 to 1 to fund a new gym and renovations in all of their existing buildings. And now on to today's top stories. The unofficial results of last night's midterm election trickled in last night and into today as nationally the promised red wave failed to appear. In Wisconsin, both Republicans and Democrats had victories. Incumbents in both political parties won another term to their respective office as voters mainly preserved the status quo. Incumbent Democrat Tony Evers will serve another four years as Wisconsin governor, along with new Lieutenant Governor Sarah Rodriguez, beating out a challenge from the Trump-endorsed Republican challenger Tim Michaels. But his current lieutenant governor and fellow Democrat Mandela Barnes, a high pro- in a high-profile bid for U.S. Senate, lost his race to a third term for Republican Ron Johnson. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt breaks down last night's results across the state. 
So I'm excited to be here tonight to say that I'm Tony Evers, and I'm incredibly proud. I'm incredibly proud to be the 46th governor of the state of Wisconsin. And I'm jazz as hell to tell you that on January 3rd, 2023, I will still be the 46th governor of the great state of Wisconsin. Oh, holy mackerel, folks, how about that? Last night, shortly after midnight, Democratic Governor Tony Evers took the stage at the Orpheum Theater in downtown Madison to deliver his victory speech. It was just moments after he'd received a concession call from Republican challenger Tim Michaels. As soon as polls closed at 8 p.m. last night, Evers took the lead, which he never lost. He ultimately beat Michaels by around 90,000 votes, more than 50,000 more votes than when he beat former Republican Governor Scott Walker for the seat in 2018. While Michaels came within one percentage point around 11 last night, Evers quickly pulled ahead and was up 60,000 votes by midnight. By 12.15, Michaels had taken the stage to address attendees at his election party at the Italian Community Center in Milwaukee. Thanks for all the hard work that happened over the last, you know, two and a half, three months in the general and in the primary. I couldn't be more proud of people. Uh, unfortunately, the math doesn't add up. I just called Governor Evers and conceded. I wish the Evers family well. Um. While the crowd in Milwaukee voiced their disapproval for the results, one attendee likening it to the failed fire festival, the mood in Madison was joyous. As Sister Sledge blared on the PA, Evers thanked his supporters and reminded them of his priorities. You showed up for the reproductive rights and the freedom for you. The freedom for you and your neighbors to make their own health care decisions without having to ask me or any other elected official. You showed up for working families who are worried about the economy and rising costs. Who's going to make sure that they can put food on the table? We are. You showed up for our kids, for our educators and staff in our public schools. Because you believe, as I do, what's best for our kids is best for our state. You, show, you showed up for LGBTQ folks and trans kids who want to be safe who they are in our state. You showed, you showed up for conservation, for clean energy, to take climate change seriously in a future that doesn't treat protecting our environment and good-paying jobs like they're mutually exclusive, because they're not. You remember those Scott holes from four years ago? And you, sh you showed up for fixing the damn roads, expanding access to high-speed internet, and continuing to invest in our state's infrastructure. And perhaps most importantly, you showed up because you saw our democracy was on a brink of existence and you decided to do a damn thing about it. 
Meanwhile, Wisconsin went to bed last night not knowing the fate of Wisconsin's U.S. Senate seat. Around 1 a.m., both Republican Ron Johnson and Democrat Mandela Barnes ended their respective parties, both saying the race was too close to call. While Johnson had the lead, Milwaukee County Supervisor Felicia Martin encouraged the crowd not to give up hope. No matter what anyone says or wants to predict, we're going to make, again, every single vote count because you all put too many hours in on doors, on phones, postcards, just rocking it out every day. So let's all go home, get some sleep, and let democracy, let democracy work. It is only by counting every voice, making certain that every single vote is cast, that was cast counted, we will not go down in history saying that Wisconsin suppressed votes in this all-important lesson. At around 11 this morning, with a lead of over 25,000 votes, the race was called by the media for Ron Johnson. Shortly after Johnson lambasted media outlets for not being quick enough to call the race for him. Speaking this afternoon at the Sherman Phoenix Marketplace in Milwaukee, where he'd started his campaign, Barnes conceded the race and urged his supporters to keep fighting for change. When asked today why he lost and his Democratic ally won in Wisconsin, Barnes pointed to the vicious political advertising this political cycle, saying, quote, Ron Johnson's campaign sought to divide Wisconsinites by race and to provoke fear, unquote. Statewide offices were on the ballot last night with an unusual and surprising split between parties. The GOP picked up a win in state treasurer with Republican Josh Lieber beating out Democrat Aaron Richardson, currently mayor of Fitchburg, by a narrow margin. Meanwhile, Wisconsin's Secretary of State race is proving to be the tightest statewide race in Wisconsin. The incumbent, Doug LaFollette, has served in the office consecutively since 1982. He's facing a challenge from Republican Amy Loudenbeck, who has advocated to restore some decision-making power over election administration to the office. With LaFollette leading by a margin of approximately 7,000 votes this afternoon, the race is still too close to call. In a statement this afternoon, LaFollette urged people to trust the process as results roll in and as possible recounts loom. Not to be forgotten is the race for state attorney general, where incumbent Democrat Josh Call has fended off a challenge from Republican challenger Eric Toney by roughly 34,000 votes, who conceded early this morning. At a mid-morning press conference, Call said public safety would continue to be his number one priority as Wisconsin's top prosecutor, along with issues like finding solutions to gun violence and grappling with Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban. That our public servants do is incredibly important and it makes a difference in communities across the state uh, day in and day out. Tony, currently the district attorney of Fond du Lac County, promised during his campaign to actively enforce the ban. Call, meanwhile, has filed a lawsuit against the state legislature saying the ban is unenforceable, a case that is lingering in the courts. Democrats had a lucrative night in Dane County, with Tony Evers gaining more votes in the county than his first time around in 2018. 302,459 voters cast a ballot in Dane County, and the clerk's office is reporting that's just over 80% turnout of all registered voters.
While several Democratic state lawmakers won re-election in Dane County, such as Senators Mark Spritzer of District 15 and Diane Hesselbein of District 27, the county also has a few new faces. In the Assembly's 46th seat, Democratic candidate and Dane County Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe beat out fellow County Supervisor and Republican candidate Andrew McKinney by over 30 points. Ratcliffe attended Tony Evers' election party last night, where she says abortion access is one of her biggest priorities going forward. Um, so this was the number one issue that I heard at Doors, uh, and what I one of the issues that I ran on. Um, I have a daughter, and I can't believe that I have more rights than she had. Um, and so it, it's important that we continue to push back on this um, ban of abortions. And um, it, the stories that I heard at Doors are, were very personal on the um, issue of abortion and how it affects people in different ways. Ratcliffe was not the only Dane County supervisor to pick up an assembly seat. Democratic candidate Alex Jewers, who picked up the state's 79th assembly seat, is also a current supervisor. Mike Baer, who ran as a Democrat, was the final supervisor to pick up an assembly seat, representing District 80. The final candidate up for election here in Dane County was current Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett, who easily won his re-election last night, beating Republican candidate Anthony Hamilton by over 50 points. The Democratic sheriff was also at Tony Evers' election party last night, where he was grateful to Dane County voters. In everything that we do moving forward, I think we've uh, had a very successful uh, 16 months that I've been the sheriff here. And I know that we have very educated and intelligent voters here in Dane County, and they're going to be able to do the research needed to find the best candidate for this position, as well as other positions here in the state of Wisconsin. And I trust that they'll make the right decision. Voters across the state also saw local referendums on the ballot. Dane County had three advisory referenda. While the questions are not binding, they are used to show the will of the people in a specific county. Two of the questions concern the use of marijuana, one asking if it should be legalized and taxed, and the other asking if previous convictions for the drug should be expunged. Both questions passed by over 80%. The final question regarded Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban, asking whether or not it should be repealed. Repealing the abortion ban had even more support than legalizing marijuana, 85% of Dane County voters calling for it to be overturned. Remember that these results are not yet official as provisional ballots are not due until Friday. If you have a provisional ballot, make sure you turn in the proper paperwork to your municipal clerk by 4 p.m. on Friday. And now we get a short break from the election ads, but don't worry, they'll be back soon. The spring nonpartisan election heats up in just a few months and will feature an important race for state Supreme Court, along with local races for alder and mayor. But for now, let's not worry too much about that. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Shally Pittman and Christopher Cartwright contributed reporting to this story.
while a lot of the attention last night was on the various statewide races, there were also a bevy of important federal and state elections in communities across Wisconsin. Republicans shooting for a supermajority in the state legislature fell just short, while Western Wisconsin Democrats fighting for a House seat got ignored and paid the price. To help break down the rest of the state races, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with journalist Patrick Marley, who reports on voting issues in the upper Midwest for The Washington Post. So, Patrick, I know I you are probably just about as tired as I am this morning, but I just want to start off this interview by just sort of asking you how, how your night was last night, uh, especially considering, you know, you spent uh, years and years and years uh, at the uh, Journal Sentinel here, and now you are over at the Post. Uh, so so what, what was your night like? Well, my beat is a little bit different than when I was at the Journal Sentinel, so for many years I would spend my election night in the state capitol press room and, you know, watch um, victory parties and concession speeches on TV and coordinate with my colleagues uh, on sort of the pure horse race political who won, who lost. Um, my beat at the Washington Post is more on the voting process itself. So I spent election night at Milwaukee's um, absentee center, Wisconsin center, which I guess they wrapped up at about 1030 at night, which is earlier than past major elections. Um, so, you know, I watched that process, and then actually uh, nearby was Mandela Barnes's um, election night party, so I wandered over to that, and, you know, they they closed that down around 1 a.m. without um, knowing the outcome of the election, but with, but with Barnes behind at that point. And so sort of going off that a little bit, uh, like you said, they sort of closed down at around 1 a.m. at both Barnes and Johnson's uh, parties last night with no uh, results given. It really looked like it was leaning towards Johnson, uh, but uh, really nothing nothing uh, set in stone quite yet. And neither, neither uh, party had quite uh, officially said, yes, we have won. Uh, so now I want to go into a little bit of uh, breaking news here. Ron Johnson put out a press release this morning uh Sort of, sort of uh, yelling at the mainstream media for not calling the race uh, that was over. And now that race has now been called uh, as of uh, we are now recording at 1130 here. So that has been re- uh, called now. But uh, I just want to start off with sort of your thoughts on that, on uh, Ron Johnson sort of criticizing the media for, for not calling the election earlier than they did. I mean, it was a close race. There were um, – he, he had a lead. Like you say, it's been called um, – at that point, you know, the Associated Press is typically looked to as the gold standard of calling races. They have a very uh, specific system they use that they've long used. It doesn't favor one party over the other. They call the race when they think they have enough data. They, you know, as of this morning, they didn't. Later in the morning, they did. Um, and it, I mean, at the end of the day, it sort of doesn't matter what the media says. What matters is what the total actual votes are and what election officials uh, deem them to be. But Ron Johnson felt like they were too slow to do it. He got out in front of it, and it wasn't too much longer that AP and other news organizations felt like they had enough data to say that he indeed had won. And so now, like you said, yes, Ron Johnson did uh, win last night. So now looking uh, sort of at the uh, greater state of the uh, Senate, especially here in uh, Wisconsin, uh, what what sort of happens next with uh, the Senate with uh, Wisconsin's two seats there? Well, I mean, Ron Johnson's, needed to keep that seat. The Republicans needed Ron Johnson to keep that seat for them to have any kind of path 
or you know the most realistic paths to get to 51. Of course, they were at 50-50 prior to election night. Um, they didn't have a great night uh, elsewhere in the country. Of course, they lost the Pennsylvania seat with um, John Fetterman winning there. It's still some races out to be called. It very much looks like Georgia could go to a runoff again. So it seems that the fate of the Senate could again come down to one Senate race in one state in a runoff election, uh, that again being Georgia, as it was two years ago. And so now moving over to uh, another federal seat uh, over in the House, and specifically I want to talk about the uh, seat that was uh, vacated by uh, Ron Kind, which was up against, uh, you had uh, Brad Paff and Derek Van Orden, and Orden did uh, end up taking the victory there. That was just announced this morning here. Tell me tell me a little bit about that race and sort of uh, what, what happened there. So that seat is this West, Western Wisconsin and had been very comfortably Democratic for a long time. And as things have shifted in the state, um, it got increasingly competitive, especially with the rise of Trump and sort of a new um, type of voter showing up who might not have been coming to the polls before. And so, um, you know, that seat was very much in play. And then Ron Kine decided not to run ele- uh, for election. Obviously, uh, it is much easier to hold a seat when you have an incumbent running. So it made it even more competitive. Um, Derek Van Orden had run two years prior and lost and, you know, immediately got back into this race. Um, honestly, Democrats had sort of given up on that seat in many ways for a long time and had expected it to go to Van Orden and maybe hadn't invested in it as much as they might have in the past. And it's possible now that they're regretting that because I think that race, like many other um, races across the country, ended up being closer than Republicans and Democrats expected. Um, So, you know, to see that seat, I I don't think Democrats are going to seat it forevermore kind of the way that that the northern Wisconsin seat, which has, you know, seems completely out of reach for the Democrats these days. Um, I think they'll be viewing the third congressional district as something that they can continue to try to get in future elections. And now let's let's take a look at some of the uh, other House races here in Wisconsin. What else happened across the state uh, for the uh, in the House? I mean, we don't really have other competitive seats in Wisconsin. Um, you know, Dane County and Milwaukee County, those very um, democratic places, and their seats are safely in those hands. The other seats are very comfortably Republican. The one exception might be the first congressional district. This is where Brian Stile is, and it previously belonged to Paul Ryan. Um, the way that the, we, ha- we have uh, new maps, slightly new maps after redistricting, and that got uh, a little more competitive. Now, those, seat, those district lines got put together at the very last minute, and so the Democrats didn't field a you know, really well-funded candidate against Brian Stile. But I think they've got their eyes on that site as something where we'll see some competition uh, in, in future elections. Um, but really, you know, you have the, the third with the European ordinance that we were talking about before. That's, that's competitive. But most congressional seats in Wisconsin are just not, you know, it's decided at the primary level, not at the general election. So now I want to uh, shift over to some of the statewide races uh, that happened in the legislature. Now I know Republicans were pushing to have a a supermajority in the legislature uh, to uh, sort of take away the veto powers that Governor uh, Tony Evers would have. So let's let's just sort of talk about uh, what's what sort of push were they having to uh, get that supermajority. 
So, I mean, the Republicans' number one goal from a state government level was to win the governor's office. That eluded them. Uh, Tim, Tony Evers did win the second term. Tim Michaels lost. Um, their second best hope, if Tony Evers, you know, if, if they didn't win the governorship, would have been to get to two-thirds majorities in both the Senate and the Assembly. And then that would render much of what the governor does as meaningless because they could override any vetoes. Uh, governor Evers, of course, has vetoed um, – historic number of, of bills during his four years in office because he and Republican lawmakers just never saw eye to eye on much of anything. Um, they did get to two thirds in the state Senate. They came just shy of that in the state assembly. It looked, it, you know, almost surely that's the, what it's going to be. And um, so that makes things uh, a situation where Democrats are, are going to have to sweat it for future elections. Cause that appears there, there could be a circumstance in which, Republicans get, could get to two thirds, but they don't have it right now, which means almost surely all of any vetoes that Evers issues issued would um, not be overridden. It's you know you have to go back to the 1980s since a veto has been overridden in Wisconsin. It's extremely rare to happen. Well, Patrick, last night was a a very busy night for uh, just about everyone here. So just sort of wrapping up here, do you have just any final thoughts of uh, things that you think are important for people to know about uh, everything that happened last night? I mean, one thing that's really uh, bears thinking about is that uh, Tony Evers won and Ron Johnson won. Um, It's really rare to have uh, split ticket voting in as polarized a time as we are these days. And so that's a that's a pretty interesting fact that Tim Michaels underperformed Ron Johnson. Um, I mean, Ron Johnson's win was narrow. Tony Evers' win was narrow. But they have found enough people who were either willing to vote for both of them or to skip one race on the ballot uh, that, that we have this outcome. Um, we are a purple state. But usually what happens, we have uh, divided situations because, like, you know, Tammy Baldwin's elected in a different year than Ron Johnson, so it's sort of a different group of the electorate that shows up. This was kind of a rarity, and I think, um, you know, both parties are going to be studying this closely to see why this happened to, you know, find more opportunities to their advantage in the future. Well, I've been talking with Patrick Marley with the uh, Washington Post about last night's elections here in Wisconsin. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for uh, talking with me here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you for joining us tonight. It is usually pretty safe to say that during a midterm election, the party of the president does poorly. However, yesterday, Democrats did better than expected. Earlier today, a public affair host, Carousel Baird, spent the hour discussing the midterms with two Wisconsin political science professors. In this excerpt, Julia Azari, professor of political science at Marquette, breaks down the myth of the midterm red wave. This is a small portion of the entire hour-long conversation. You can listen to the entire interview on wortfm.org. Can you start? We talked big picture, but help us lay the land. I want uh, lay the landscape. I want to hear your take on big picture. It wasn't the Republican national landslide that was predicted. What's your take on what happened yesterday? All right. So I have a couple of things that I want to uh, point out <laughs> from yesterday. Yesterday morning, 
the big kind of thing that that all the pundits were saying, uh, I think there was a little bit of a little bit of groupthink on the podcast because I listened to podcast after, after podcast where they all said the same thing, which was to look at um, these three districts in Virginia to kind of see what kind of night we were going to have. And so there's one district that were all three held by Democratic women. Um, And one of those districts, the one held by Elaine Luria, who's been serving on the January 6th committee, she did lose her seat. The other two, so there was one that was kind of middle of the road, Virginia 7th, um, held by Abigail Spanberger, a moderate Democrat who's now held on for three election cycles in this kind of competitive district, and then Jennifer Wexton in a a more trending blue district. And so everybody yesterday morning was kind of saying, if Virginia's 10th district goes Republican, then you know that this is your sign for the red wave. So fairly early in the night, we started to get returns to see that that didn't happen, that the the 7th and the 10th were still Democratic. Um, So that's, I think, kind of the the early takeaway. So that immediately brought out this kind of skepticism of the red wave. The second thing I want to point out is, as you said, we still don't actually know what's going on. Um, the House Republicans are two seats, or excuse me, 20 seats away from uh, winning a majority. There's a bunch of seats that are not called. Democrats have um, about 20 more beyond that that they would have to win to control the majority. Um, so we really don't know what's going to happen there. We can probably guess it'll be close. In the Senate, it's now we've we've um, our race here in Wisconsin has been called as of this morning. So it's now down to Arizona and Georgia, which you're kind of like, is this familiar? Does this remind you? Of <laughs> Haven't we had this conversation <laughs> before? Right. Right. We've we've been here before. Um, and, you know, kind of similarly thinking about last night's map, that the attention. Some of this is just the quirks of the, how the Senate works and what ha- seats happen to be up we're also you know all eyes on pennsylvania and when fetterman won pennsylvania when that race was called that was kind of like a, a key indicator of the kind of night that the democrats were having much not amazing but much better than expected similarly pennsylvania was the key state in 2020 and the that was a flipped bring- seat that was in particular not mm-hmm. especially that for the first half of the show when we talked about Wisconsin we mm-hmm. were talking about mm-hmm. the power of incumbency for Ron Johnson yep. and for Governor Evers and Pennsylvania although it wasn't the incumbent it it was held by a Republican <laughs> and it's a seat that has now been flipped when yep. in a 50-50 Senate makes a big difference it does make exactly it does make a big difference and so far among the Senate races if I'm Recalling correctly, as we wait on those Georgia and uh, Arizona, um, those races, so far the Republicans actually have not flipped a Senate seat. Um, the They've won some competitive races, but they haven't flipped one. So well, the reason I bring up 2020, though, is because this kind of looks like a replay of 2020. And that's unusual. Usually a midterm election, we look to the midterm to be kind of like a rejection mm-hmm. of the past election and instead it looks like many of the same dynamics are at play and the last thing i want to say just briefly is thus far again many seats not called in the house republicans have lost uh excuse me have gained two seats in the house um the the average number of seats that that um parties lose in in midterm elections is much closer to you know 20 or 30. Mm-hmm. um obama's first midterm election they lost 60 over 60 seats so so far, very modest gains for this sort of out-party situation, unpopular president, a lot of concerns about the economy, and yet the the out-party in Congress has not translated this into a big, a big victory. That's really remarkable. 
With Wisconsin's gun deer season fast approaching, thousands of Wisconsinites will carry a day's worth of food and drink with them in an insulated cooler. Most don't think much of this mundane detail, but on this week's installment of Parks and Landmarks, contributor Sean Bull explores the surprising ways that coolers have changed to mirror larger trends in American consumerism. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. As this segment airs, we're days away from the beginning of the biggest part of Wisconsin's deer hunting season. As thousands of Wisconsinites head into the woods, the last thing they want to worry about is whether the sun is going to cook the sandwiches they left back in their truck. As much as it seems like winter is around the corner, November weather is too temperamental to count on the air to refrigerate your lunch. I last aired this piece in the summer, but it's no less relevant this time of year. So now, expanded and in higher sound quality, I'd like to discuss today a bit of kit that's simultaneously overlooked, yet ubiquitous. The insulated cooler has existed commercially for 70 years. At a glance, it has remained much the same over that time, a box in which you keep ice, food, and drinks. But look closer, and you can see the subtle ways in which the cooler has changed. These changes reveal parallel changes in what we value as consumers and as Americans. To show you what I mean, let's go back to the beginning. People have been chilling food and drinks with ice for a long time. Centuries before the modern refrigerator was invented, people would store their perishables in insulated boxes packed with ice. However, despite being basically the same technology, the icebox actually prevented the cooler from becoming a thing. You see, people use iceboxes because they couldn't make cold. The only option at the time was to harvest ice wherever it naturally occurred and store it, insulated, until it melted and was no longer of use. So in a time when ice, and therefore refrigeration, was a finite resource, chipping a bit off and carrying it out to a picnic would have been considered kind of wasteful. All this changed in the 20th century. With the proliferation of electricity in America, advancements in refrigeration came quickly. By the early 1940s, many households had fridges and freezers which we would recognize today. Ice was finally widely available. But then, war broke out and distracted the world's inventors from the cooler's inevitable ascendance. The cooler's time finally came in the 50s, it's not clear who exactly invented it first, but the Australians put the first successful model to market, an insulated metal box with room for six beers and some accompanying food. They called it the Esky, and though they've stopped putting a cartoon Inuit on the label, the name has stuck around, both as a brand and as a catch-all name for a cooler down under. I don't know much about Australian history, but I can see why the cooler caught on in the US not long after. The 1950s were a time of great change in the states. The GI Bill sent record numbers of returning veterans to college, white people fled to the suburbs by the millions, and somewhat less seismic, but related to the topic at hand, Little League Baseball started to really take off. So, people had ice on hand, money to spend, and places to be outdoors, far from any soda shops or bars. 
there was an obvious need for a device to transport refreshments and keep them, well, refreshing. The first coolers were much like the cars of the day, heavy and solid with metal all over the place. But the 1950s was also a time of innovation in plastics, and as their production became more common, coolers adopted the new material to save on weight and cost. Over the next few decades, Americans grew to love big-box superstores, buildings with the shelf space to house every possible size and price point of every product on the market, and cooler selection expanded to match. After selling every size of cooler any reasonable person would want to buy, where could the market expand to next? In the 90s and 2000s, kitsch was king. If your product had the right loud aesthetic, there was a market for it somewhere. Oddball cars like the Hummer and PT Cruiser sold well. Themed restaurants, think Bubba Gump or Rainforest Cafe, swept the nation. Closer to home for us, all the Wisconsin Dells theme parks blossomed out of this era. And riding the crest of this tacky wave was the Big Bobber floating cooler. The Big Bobber is exactly what it sounds like. A hollow sphere of red and white plastic hinged in the middle, shaped like a foot-wide fishing bobber. It's worth pointing out, most coolers are floating coolers. The big bobber is not special in this way, but it is special in the reaction it elicits. It's big, it's silly, and I smile every time I see one. The company that originated them has now hard pivoted to selling only knives and sharpeners, and to me, the big bobber has become a symbol of a simpler time. The polar opposite of the Big Bobber rose to prominence with modern social media. There have always been ways to be both outdoorsy and fashionable, but Instagram and YouTube influencers have taken this to another level. In the quest to portray an idealized lifestyle, social media has created a market for products whose form is just as important as function. This phenomenon has affected the cooler market in many ways, most spectacularly with the coolest. The coolest was meant to be better than other coolers. Because it wasn't just a cooler, it was the coolest. Get it? It was a large, rolling plastic cooler molded into a sharp, attractive profile. It was meant to be an all-in-one party station, including a built-in blender, battery, Bluetooth speaker, and device charger. In 2014, its creator posed it as the cooler of the future, and the internet agreed forking over $13 million to make it happen. Then a year passed, then five. It turns out it's really hard to start a manufacturing company. In the end, they weren't able to make enough, or even make a profit. The company shut down in 2019 without delivering anything to 20,000 of its Kickstarter backers. Maybe the coolest approached innovation in the wrong way, in the same time frame, Yeti has become a juggernaut by making simple improvements. Better insulation, more durable plastic, bear-proof latches. I could argue all day whether these things make a cooler worth $400, but the brand has certainly become worth quite a bit. You probably know someone who has at least a Yeti brand coffee mug. Those aren't really any different than products Thermos has made for decades. But all Yeti products get a boost from the rock-solid reputation of the company's flagship cooler line. 
It seems the way to make a fashionably outdoorsy product is not to make one gadget that does everything like the coolest. Rather, successful companies in the space make a brick, a product that is at least perceived as extremely capable doing one thing. So overbuilt that it should last decades being dragged around the least hospitable places on Earth. Or at least, it looks that way, so it looks really cool the next time you bring it out to the tailgate. So, what's next? What does the future of coolers reflect about the future of our society? Hopefully, a new emphasis on sustainability. I haven't talked much about disposable coolers because they haven't really changed since the 50s. Styrofoam is a great insulator and cheap to make, but everyone knows that it's terrible for the environment. Regardless, there hasn't been a better option until the last couple years. In addition to styrofoam, companies are now selling coolers made from wax and tree pulp. They look like cardboard and are completely biodegradable, but they totally work as coolers. I think people might be wary of adopting new products in this vein, as paper straws have soured public opinion on biodegradable food products. I haven't tested a compostable cooler personally, but the video reviews I've seen have been promising. Unlike paper straws, these coolers don't dissolve on contact with water and can hold up to multiple uses. It's early in their product cycle, so they could have disadvantages we don't know about yet. But for now, I'm just excited to see companies still innovating. I'm guessing 10 straight minutes of cooler talk is all any of you can stand. I'm going to end the segment, but if you'd like to talk more about coolers, especially the big bobber, please reach out to me at sean.bull at wordfm.org. Or if you're as done with this topic as I suspect, suggest a different one. I promise I'm going back to parks and stuff next week. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. We go now to November 1962, when urban renewal was in trouble, legal conflicts confused efforts for a public auditorium, and the most famous black chef in America passed away. Stu Levitan has the news from 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, November 1962 More trouble for the city's urban renewal program as efforts to relocate residents of the Greenbush neighborhood who are losing their homes to the Triangle Project continue to flounder. Florence Zmedzinski, relocation supervisor for the Madison Redevelopment Authority, says that her recent report blasting her own agency's failures, quote, did create an awareness of the problem, but the publicity has not provided the relocation staff with many new units. The Wisconsin State Journal minces no words in its critique, quote, Madison's relocation effort involving Triangle residents is pretty obviously in trouble, it editorializes. 
houses are being removed more rapidly than safe and decent housing is becoming available. This could leave persons with no income, no place to go. The fault lies in planning mistakes made by the Madison Redevelopment Authority. Five days later, Eastside attorney and developer Albert McGinnis, who has chaired the MRA since its creation in 1958, suggests a solution. Having the MRA enter into five-year leases with private landlords, then renting the units to households being relocated. But when it comes time to talk with the Madison Housing Authority about its leased housing program, old antagonisms arise, triggered when McGinnis again mentions, quote, public housing ghettos. That's the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard, snaps Housing Authority Chair Attorney Roland Day. It's so ridiculous, I doubt if there's any reason for continuing this meeting. The place to build public housing is where it's needed. In other housing news, it looks like a large apartment complex will soon be built at the corner of Wisconsin Avenue and East Gilman Street, as the Federal Housing Administration approves the feasibility study and higher project costs for the first unit of Vilas Towers, upscale housing for the elderly on the site of the historic Vilas Mansion. The state FHA director thinks the prospects of authority financing are, quote, excellent for the eight-story, 109-unit building, planned as the first of three similar buildings, each of which will have plenty of amenities. And housing for a much different market moves ahead, as building permits are issued for a million-dollar, 140-unit apartment project on Northport Drive, sponsored by the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The integrated rent-controlled project will be built on the former Bruns Farm, just off North Sherman Avenue, where it will have good fire protection from the recently opened Fire Station Number 10 on Troy Drive. Mayor Henry Reynolds thought that passage of the referendum earlier this year to abandon plans for a public auditorium at the end of Monona Avenue meant the city was done with the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. But in mid-November, just as the auditorium committee is interviewing the prominent Chicago firm of Shaw Metz & Associates about its plans for a facility at the new location, just west of the park on Lake Mendota, Judge Richard Bardwell drops a bombshell. In a sweeping decision, he finds the city's contract with the Wright Foundation valid and enforceable and orders the city to arbitrate the dispute over the foundation's fee for the now-canceled project. The Common Council promptly appeals, and the Auditorium Committee presses on, recommending that Shaw Metz be retained. For years, the UW faculty has opposed the contract requiring members of the Big Ten Conference to participate in the Rose Bowl if invited. As the Badgers roll through the 62 season, such an invitation looks likely. So President Fred Harvey Harrington consults with the Athletic Board and the powerful University Committee and announces the University will indeed accept an invitation. Nobody's happy about it. The committee unanimously adopts a resolution stating that it feels, quote, obliged to accept the invitation. And Harrington tells the regents that, quote, postseason games involve a type of overemphasis that is undesirable. The Capital Times agrees, denouncing, quote, the undesirable nature of this arrangement with the commercial promoters who stage the Rose Bowl hoopla. Two days after Thanksgiving, the Badgers cap a Cinderella season by beating border rival Minnesota 14-9 at Camp Randall. 
a jubilant crowd of 10,000 celebrates by parading to the Capitol and back behind the UW band, blocking State Street with impunity. The Badgers not only retain Paul Bunyan's axe and win the Big Ten title, but also finish the season ranked second in the nation, their highest ranking ever. Everyone starts making plans for New Year's Day when Wisconsin will take on top-ranked University of Southern California, the first time the two top teams will face each other in a bowl game. Badger fans hope for a better showing than the debacle against Washington in 1960. A unique educational initiative started by University President Charles Van Hise in 1911 enters its final days as the Madison School Board unanimously approves merging Wisconsin High School with Central High School, effective July 1964. Superintendent Philip Falk says this will provide Central with needed additional students and relieve pressure on West High School, which will soon be so crowded the city will have to open a new Westside High School by September 1966. A few weeks later, the UW Regents agree and approve the creation of Central University High School. And Carson Gully, supervising chef for the UW residence halls from 1927 to 1954, creator of its famed Fudge Bottom Pie, and profiled in Who's Who in Colored America, dies November 2nd at age 65 from complications of diabetes. The Arkansas native was cooking at the Essex Lodge Summer Resort in Tomahawk, Wisconsin, where the vacationing director of UW Dormities and Food Service recruited him. Gully directed a training course for Navy cooks and bakers during World War II, which he expanded into a two-year UW training course for chefs. From 1953 to 1962, he and his wife Beatrice hosted the weekly What's Cookin' on Madison's WMTV, apparently the first black couple in America with their own television show. Unable to find decent housing due to racially restrictive covenants and practices, the Gullies lived in a basement apartment in Tripp Hall until his retirement. Gully then sought to build a home on Cedar Place in the cooperative Crestwood subdivision on the west side, but was able to move in only after his neighbors voted to allow it, with one-third of the neighborhood residents publicly standing up to vote against this at a meeting. At least one cross was later burned on his lawn. After serving and supervising 16 million meals but never being promoted to director of dormitory food services, Gully left the university. He and Beatrice opened a restaurant catering service at 5222 University Avenue on September 3rd. Two weeks later, Gully fell ill and was hospitalized until his death. And that's this week's Madison the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday nights. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Your reporter tonight was Christopher Cartwright. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. And thanks to a public affair host, Carousel Baird. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce this broadcast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Have a good night.